this is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are wrapping up our look at the kings of Israel, exploring the story of Naaman and its implications for us. This is one of my personal favorites. Not quite the, the thunderous awesomeness that was Elijah, but one of the most practical uh, lessons I've ever learned. Before I forget, when we get to the Naaman portion... Uh, my listeners ought to know that uh, when I heard this lesson originally as a sermon, uh, it was preached by Rob Bell at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids years ago. And um, boy, when I heard it, it just was one of those teachings that just hit you and resonated. And uh, man, it's been a big, has been a really liberating piece to uh, me being in ministry for years and years and years. So uh, always excited to share it whenever I get to. But before we do that, let's review. I haven't done that in a while on the podcast. Starting in the book of Genesis, we have a preface. We have an introduction in the preface, Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, we talk about um, uh, starts with a good creation. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. God invites creation to rest and to trust. We say trust the story in Bema all the time. Uh, God, the whole story begins with God affirming the goodness of creation and an invitation for us to trust that that is in fact true, not true with an asterisk, not true with a caveat, not partially true, but entirely true. Now the rest of the preface, you know, Genesis two through 11, um, is a bunch of stories of people not trusting and, and uh, God reaffirming it halfway through in the story of Noah and, and people just struggling to trust the story because they've got fear and they've got insecurity and those fears and insecurities make them try to protect themselves and pursue a, uh, what we call a narrative of self-preservation rather than a narrative of self-sacrifice. And right about the time that it feels like this is just always going to be the way that it is, we meet Avram, and he takes us into what we call the introduction, Genesis 12 through 50, and we meet the family of God, and they're not perfect, and they make all kinds of mistakes, and they don't always trust the story. But uh, by and large, the thing that marks this family as different is throughout the generations, they lean into believing that God's putting the world back together, that new stories can be written, uh, that tomorrow does not have to be like today, and things don't have to be cyclical. And uh, and because of that, everything can change. And that that sets up the big ideas, it introduces us to the key players, and helps us apply some of these these ideas to real life. And now the stage is set for what we call the narrative. And uh, we call the narrative what, Brent? A tale of two kingdoms, empire versus shalom. Tale of two kingdoms, always two narratives. A narrative of empire, a narrative of fear, of of self-preservation, of, of fame and, and leisure and comfort and wealth versus shalom, uh, a narrative of wholeness. That wholeness is going to be built off of, of mercy and invitation and self-sacrifice and, and trust. Um, and, and that's what this whole Bible is about, these two narratives colliding. That starts in Exodus with uh, God rescuing his people. In the story of the plagues, leads him to Mount Sinai, where there's a gigantic wedding ceremony and a marriage, where he marries his people and invites them. They will be for him a kingdom of priests, and and that's going to raise a question. What do you mean priest? What do you mean priesthood? I don't understand what a priest is. I've been in Egypt for 400 years, and so God says, "Well, build me a tabernacle." The rest of Exodus is about tabernacle, and He says, "Write down this book called Leviticus," and Leviticus ends up being this gigantic owner's manual for priesthood. It's it's what it means to be a priest. 
from God says you'll be for me a kingdom of priests. You can watch them at the tabernacle. You can read about them in Leviticus. And so Leviticus talks to us about priesthood. It starts with atonement. It makes sure that we know that we're right with God before we go anywhere else. It talks to us about uh, what it means to to be a priest, how they look, how they dress, um, how they go about their sexuality, how they do relationships, how they uh, just all of that. And in the middle of that section on priesthood, you have all of these what we sometimes call miscellaneous or various laws, but they're not various or miscellaneous at all. It's it's how God's people, a Jewish people, are going to eat, how they're going to dress, how they're going to pursue their sexuality, because they're supposed to be like a kingdom of priests. Um, after God explains that, he says, listen, you got a party. Uh, he ordains uh, six different festivals in the book of Leviticus, parties where they're going to remember that the story is good, because if they don't remember the story is good, uh, if they don't party, they're going to forget that truth. The party reminds us, despite our circumstances, despite our stress levels, despite how busy we might be, despite our financial troubles, despite the party reminds us uh, that the story is good. And and after that, God puts the uh, uh, God puts uh, justice on display, telling us how to take care of the oppressed. And now they have the tools for what it means to be a kingdom of priests. And so God leads them into the desert for a desert honeymoon in the book of Numbers, where they're going to, they're going to learn, they're going to experience, what's the word for experience, Brent? Um, yada. Yada, the word to know. They're going to know what it means to be in relationship with this new husband of theirs, because they're going to go experience it for 40 years in the desert for a little honeymoon period. Not very little, but a honeymoon period nonetheless. And then that leads to Deuteronomy where God, after this 40 years in the desert, God says, just don't forget. Don't forget all the things that you've learned. Remember where you came from. Remember that you came from Egypt. Remember what it's like to be a slave. Remember what it's like to be an alien, an orphan, and a widow. Because if you remember what that's like, you're going to take care of the people that I need you to take care of. I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for people who are going to partner with me in taking care of the oppressed, taking care of the marginalized, taking care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And, and that's what I'm looking for. And, and now you're ready. You're ready to march into the, uh, the promised land. And, and I want to put you at the crossroads of the earth. And so we looked at the book of Joshua and what we sometimes call the conquest, but it's really about God putting his people in the middle of the action. We, we went into the book of Judges because we have quite a cycle that we get stuck in. Not at what, Brent? Not a sin cycle, but a, a redemption cycle. Exactly. Like we, we can't, there is a cycle and we've all experienced it. It is a story of our lives. It's a story of so much of our journey as we try to figure out what it means to follow God. And God is just patient. He's patient. He's patient. He's patient. He's long suffering. He endures all kinds of things. His love endures forever as we try to figure out what it means to follow God. Um, sin is a part of the cycle. Sin is most definitely a part of the cycle. But the, the, crown the the gem of the cycle is god's unending patience absolutely yeah and we don't want to deny that sin plays a part but sin doesn't define it at least not in my book i don't want it to i want god's patience and god's goodness and god's redemption to define the cycle and that's what we see in judges and uh and, and while we were there like judges is really depressing because this is a bunch of a bunch of cycle what we just talked about. But we do get to zoom in into the book of Ruth and we get to see a whole story about a a love story about a Moabitess and a righteous Israelite. And it's really a love story about God to his people and God's people uh, back to him and and people that are doing it. They're not cutting the corners of their field. They're being a kingdom of priests that the book Leviticus called them to be. They're remembering the story just like Deuteronomy told them to. And, And a guy like Boaz is willing to put his own 
agenda and legacy aside in order to take care of root this Moabitus. And and so we have that. And that led us to the most recent discussions we've been having about the period of the kings. And we had the book of Samuel and Kings. We had the story of Chronicles, which we said are really two different sources for the same period of history. Um, we said that story A was written from uh, whose perspective, Brent? From Israel's perspective, more of uh, current events or headlines. Exactly. Story B. Story B is from Jews' perspective, more of a documentary, uh, uh, a higher view perspective, greater hindsight. Yeah, yeah, loaded with hindsight and perspective that comes with time and with age and maturity of a people. And and that covers the period of history of Shaul, this donkey herder from Benjamin, uh, David, this shepherd from Judah and Solomon, all of which have their own different versions of the story, but they're 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 leading God's people sometimes very poorly, sometimes well, but ultimately this people falls in love with empire. The the kingdom splits because instead of trusting the story, instead of looking out for each other, instead of taking care of the marginalized and the oppressed, instead of looking like the book of Ruth, we have a whole bunch of people worried about politics, worried about influence, worried about uh, power, worried about having all the things that they need. And and so it all just kind of begins to fall apart. And so Solomon becomes, uh, he dies, and this becomes a, a split kingdom between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and... and uh, the Boam boys, the as Boam boys. JT likes to refer to them. <sighs> Throwback to the tizzle. Uh, yeah, the Boam boys, that's right. And, um, and, and, and Jeroboam followed by Nadav, Nadav followed by Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and then Ahab. And so last podcast, we, we looked at the story of Elijah who shows up on the scene and says, this story is falling apart and it is not good. But God has some lessons to teach Elijah about how do we, like you would think in the midst of all of this, like if I'm God, I got to be, I got to be losing patience here. I got to be like, isn't God like Elijah in this moment? And we find out that no, God, God, in fact, hasn't changed from the God that we studied all throughout Torah. He, he's still the loving, patient God that is slow to anger, abounding in love. That All that stuff he told Moses, it's still true, Brent. It's still true. It hasn't changed. Um, and we, we find out that after all of this and all the mistakes and all the hangups and the Baal and the Asherah and the... God's still like, no, I'm, this is who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm Adonai, Adonai, faithful, uh, loving, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding. This is who God is. It's just who God is. And so as we're, as we're swinging through this period of history, I want, I want to catch one more story um, before we start to turn our attention towards the wisdom literature in the next few podcasts. And then onward to the prophets. Uh, I want to, I want to catch the story of Naaman and, uh, uh, Naaman is a fantastic little ditty. How about you start reading for us in Second Kings chapter 5? Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay, now that's a, that's a heck of a way to start a story here, because there are a couple things we don't catch in the English. Um, let's see, what did it say here? Where, what version were you reading that out of? That's uh, NIV. NIV. So it said uh, a valiant soldier. Is that what it said here? Yeah. Ah, and then be, before that, he was a great man. So right there towards the beginning, um, he was a great man in the sight of his master. And the great man in the Hebrew is the phrase ish gadol. 
Ish gadol. Now, ish is just the word for man. Nothing special about that. Uh, gadol is uh, a word that refers to uh, weight and significance. It's actually connected linguistically to the concept of kavod. We actually talked about kavod. Trivia, Brent, can you remember where we talked about kavod? Was somebody's heart. That was, yeah, that was one of the tests, right? Almost, not quite. Not quite. Somebody was being tested. Somebody had a heart that was either kavod or it was hazak. Hmm, I don't remember. His heart was being made hard. Oh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And we looked at those two words. Like there's these two yes, play yes. on words, kavod and hazak. Now kavod was, hazak was the word for strengthened and and encouraged. Encouraged. But, uh, but uh, kavod was the word for heavied or 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 stupided. Um, got way too many D's on my words today, but uh, it's it, it was the word for to to make dense, to make heavy. It's a, it's the same idea here, but used in a positive sense of when it talks about the glory of God. The word for glory can be the word kavod. Um, kavod. Uh, what does the glory of God mean? When we think in the Western world, Brent, we when we think glory, what's the image that comes to mind? It's like big, bright. <laughs> yeah, big, bright white ball of light, right? That's the glory of God. But in an Eastern sense, kavod is about what you feel. It's this thick, heavy weightiness. Like if you found yourself in the glory of God, you would like, it would press you down. You would fall to your knees. You would, because the presence is so thick and weighty. And sometimes they even use the word dark, thick, dark, weighty kavod. When Naaman is an ish gadol. When Naaman walks into the room, you feel it. Now, we're not told what his exact title is. We're just told that he has an ish gadol, meaning when he walks into a room, everybody knows. He's not the king, but he is somebody incredibly important. The problem is this ish gadol has what, Brett? Leprosy. This is a problem. It's hard to be an ish gadol somebody of great celebrity or importance or significance and have a, a brutal uh, disease like leprosy. So this is a problem. Go ahead and keep reading. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. All right, so he takes off. Who's gonna? Who's the man of God going to be here, Brent? Do you remember? The man of God? Yeah. Mm. It's going to be our uh, our protege to mm. Mr. Elijah. Elisha. Yes, we got Elisha, which was the disciple, the Talmud of... Elijah, the great prophet we looked at last time. So that's the man of God they're going to. And he, he's an Ishgadol. The king says, absolutely, I want you to see you healed. And he, he takes off with gifts and wealth and and pomp and circumstance. Like he, he takes off with, like in our world, it would be like the whole military... Uh, uh, the you know when the president goes anywhere what's the the motorcade like mm-hmm. he goes off with all the toys and the motorcycles with the lights and the black SUVs and like he's taking he's an ishgadol camel one camel one <laughs> oh boy I gotta say though six thousand shekels of gold that's a bit that's a bit but six 
I never thought about that. You're so on top of the numbers these last couple <laughs> podcasts. Yeah, fantastic. So, so interesting. We'll see. Oh, we'll see if that plays into the... That's good. Well, that's good. Okay, keep going. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Now, I love how they can't get out of like the normal way of dealing with things. Because what did the girl say? The servant girl at the beginning of the story. Remember what she said? You need to go talk to who? Uh, the prophet. The, the man of God. <laughs> but they, they're like, we can't do that. We got to go talk to the king first. So they go talk to the king. <laughs> they have to do things like, well, this is how he's got to be the important one. And of course, the king, real, real awesome. Is he even named? Was he named in that? Or was it just the king? It just says the king. Man, the unnamed king of Israel. That's fantastic. And he, he he just can't even, how in the world could he ever heal leprosy? It gives you a perspective on where his mind and his heart and what he trusts and what he believes in tears his robes. Like, how in the world am I going to help this guy? It's ridiculous. Not really a lot of names in this story at all, actually. No. King of Aram, yep. no name. King of Israel, the girl from Israel. Uh-huh. Naaman's wife, the prophet in Samaria. Yep. Not a lot of names. Yeah. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so king of Israel and my God, blah, blah, blah. See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. All right. So yeah, I just, man, you read that and I just, what insecurity does to us when we're not trusting the story this person comes trying to find help, trying to get a glimpse of the God of Israel. And this king is so insecure and and so lacking in trust, so so unrestful, <laughs> so lacking in Shabbat uh, in his heart that his only the only thing he can see is this king must be trying to pick a quarrel with me. I mean, man, the things that insecurity does to us. It, throws me back to the preface here and just man it is it is not good it does not bring shalom when we live in worry and fear and insecurity um but the prophet sends word says what are you doing send them to me i'm ready let's do this so naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of elisha's house elisha sent a messenger to him uh, to say to him go wash yourself seven times in the jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed all right so let me ask you brent how do you, what do you, what do you picture when you picture the house of Elisha? Like what's the opulence level of this amazing mansion of the prophet of God? Well, even, even the craziest mansions that we saw in over, over in Israel were not that crazy compared no. to our American standards. No. So I'm imagining it's probably just maybe one or two rooms. Yeah, we probably don't need to picture like a 7,000 square foot, like, oh, somebody go get a, go get a servant and send him to the door. But, man, I just love this. This is so, like, Elisha-type, prophet of God-type move here. Here comes an Ishgadol, an Aramean Ishgadol to the door. Yeah, I'll send my servant to the door. Go answer it. Boy. Oh, jeez. Tells him to go wash in the Jordan. Now, what we miss in that, and you were there, Brent. You can attest to this. The Jordan. Talk about the mighty, the mighty river Jordan. Um. Well, the portion we were at was... Not that 
Mighty. De- definitely not a mighty. More like a dirty crick, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we could have been to we we could have went to places where I was a little uh, a little. De- it's still it's still a dirty crick unless it's the rainy season. The Jordan is one of the most unimpressive rivers. When you get there, you're like, this is it. It is. I mean, and we're from North America. I'm from, we're from the Northwest here. I grew up on the Snake River. Like, I'm used to big rivers. And the rivers that I'm used to don't touch the, the Tigris or the Euphrates. Like, Naaman is from, more from the land, I wouldn't say he's from, but he's from, more from the land and the region of the Great Rivers, like the Euphrates River. And here he's told, just go wash in the dirty creek out back, would you? And the servant comes and tells him. So go ahead and keep reading. Wash seven times. Wash seven way. times, by the way. Not And see, I would have caught that one. But the six, that was a good grab. He comes with six. Prophet says seven. Interesting. Good. Six units of of wealth. Yep. Wealth ain't going to do him a whole lot, is it? Doesn't work. Relying on his own It's not even mentioned. And it doesn't say that he gives it to the king or anything, does it? Uh, not, no, not, they, nope. They bring it. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. All, all right. right. It's coming in the story. All, all right. right. Well, like, I'll wait. They bring it. Okay. So, uh, let's see. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar... Par 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 par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Not Na- good. Not good. He has been offended. Uh, Naaman's servants went to him and said, "My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed?" So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So the servants are like, you know, we've, <laughs> we have come all this way. Can, can we just check and make sure that nothing's going to happen? Sure enough, flesh became like that of a young lad. All right, keep going. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Okay, you, so there's those gifts that you were yeah. talking about. Wants to give him this wealth. Wants to... And I love the six and the seven play. I love that because... Is there an allusion here to Shabbat? Is there an allusion here to just trust? Just go watch. Just trust. Just go wash in the river. And now he's like, oh, I want to, no, no, that's not what this is about. This isn't about your six. This is about my seven. Mm. Mm. <laughs> if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Okay, let me stop you right there because big things just happened in those few paragraphs. The first one is that Naaman just recognized. Can you go up and read what Naaman initially says? Now I know what. Uh, where did that, oh. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Okay. I know that there's no other God in all the world except in it. That is a huge statement. Uh, at this point in history, we kind of accept monotheism as a default. We live in a Judeo-Christian corner of the world, even, you know, even throw the Islamic faith, the Abrahamic face of Islam in there. We're used to a monotheistic conversation in the ancient pagan world. Nobody was monotheistic. 
Everybody was polytheistic. Even the Israelites in a lot of yeah, yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways. Absolutely. It's such a hard thing to break out of. And in their world, they have a geographical understanding of the God system. So when they're in, if you were to visit Aram, you would worship the God of Aram because you're in Aram. That's his, that's his land. And so they had a geographical understanding. Like when he's in Israel, he might, but to say there's no other God in all the world except the God of Israel, whew, that is a huge loaded statement that we, we don't appreciate. But then it's followed up by, um, let's see, did we get to it? Where did we leave off here? Uh, did we talk about the dirt? Oh, I was just getting to that. All right, keep going then. Uh, so I'll just start over that paragraph. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Okay, so now he wants to take dirt because of that geographical understanding. He has this worldview that says, well, this god is the god of this chunk of dirt, and so if I'm going to go home and no longer be standing on this dirt... I need to have the dirt from this land. I'm going to go home. He's going to make like a little, like a little prayer patch, like a little prayer garden with the dirt of Israel. So, hey, you can worship the God of Israel. So on one hand, he's made this unbelievably theologically revolutionary. Uh, boy, I can't talk today. Theologically revolution. What am I trying to say? Revolutionary. Brent? Yeah. A revolutionary thought. He has, he has made a, a revolutionary theological leap. There we go. That's what I'm trying to say. On on one hand, he has. He, he said there's no other God except that. So you're like, man, this guy. Whew. And then in the very next paragraph, he's like, oh, and I need some dirt to to worship. So you're like, oh, man, this, this poor guy. He needs some help, right? Like he needs, we need to pull him aside. We need to take him to like theology 101 class. Like we need to give him some Bible college training. We need to hold him, like he needs a little bit of work. So go ahead and keep going. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Okay, whoa, hold on a second. So we have, he's on one hand made a huge leap. He's, he's wow. He's put his faith in the God of Israel in an incredibly unique unique way. On the other hand, he doesn't even have a basic understanding of what we might call good monotheistic theology. And and he's going back to a land with how many synagogues, Brent? Not a lot. Not a lot. A little, May, a little sparse. I mean, we're told there's a servant girl from Israel there. So maybe there's some house. And a synagogue actually started as house assemblies. Maybe there's a group of bit, but he's not going back to a place that has some thriving Jewish community. He's not going to a place where he's going to get some seminary education. He's, and on, to top all that off, he works in the temple of a false god. Like, whoa, this is, this is problematic. Now, I don't know what, what Elisha is going to say here, but I know what I was taught. If you were in this condition, I know what I was taught in youth group and all those places as I grew up my whole life. Like uh, you, you run from stuff like this, uh, you know, you turn or burn. That was an option that was told to me. Uh, I remember the old country song. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Right. Um, uh, boy, I really probably dated myself there. 
If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. I've heard that a bunch of times. I had no idea there was a song behind it. Oh, yeah, man. That's good. So uh, I think I just sang that on our podcast. It's a little disturbing. You want me to drop in a clip? Ooh. Oh. No, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I'd rather keep my ears pure. (laughs) But these are the things that I was told, like heaven or hell. Like, make your choice. Like, get off the fence. Like, what? Uh, man, this guy's in trouble. Like, we need to get this guy fixed. So go ahead and tell me what, Eli- what Elisha says. Man of God, one of the greatest prophets of Israelite history. Elijah said, go in peace. Well, that's not what I was expecting. Uh, like, that's the Hebrew equivalent to... I mean, he's just gotten done saying... Uh, okay, I want some dirt. Uh, there's no other God, but your God in all the world. Let me take some dirt. And oh, oh yeah, by the way, I, I have to go back and worship in, 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 the, in the temple of a false God that I don't believe in anymore. I, I hope that's okay. And Elisha's response is, that's okay. You, you got a long walk home. You'll figure it out. Like, what? Like if I would have put that, on a Bible college paper. <laughs> this is the master plan of evangelism. Go in peace. I, that, I would have gotten some special attention before I graduated and got handed a degree. I can promise you that much. And this is, but this is what Elisha tells Naaman. And when this lesson was first taught to me, it was taught in the context of how many of us live in an incredibly complicated world? How many of us live in a very sticky world that's not full of black and whites? And we have we have what we know about God, and we still are missing, and we're still lacking so much. And the problem is, is we don't live in this perfect, sterile environment that we talk about in church. We actually live in a very... We go to work in places that are very gray and they're very messy and they're very complicated. I mean, we got all kinds of listeners that listen to this podcast. I cannot imagine. I know what my alumni go through. People have gone through my, my ministry as college students and now they go out to work in the real world. Um, I I cannot imagine the scenarios that some of our listeners have when you, if you're listening to this, you, you, you go out into the world and life is really complicated. Your family is unbelievably messy. Uh, you're surrounded by decisions and opportunities and just, just quote unquote, doing what the Bible says is not a helpful recommendation because how to do what the Bible says in your situation is unbelievably complicated. And, and we talk in church at, like this lesson has been so liberating to me because I can I can take a nod from Ellie Shaw here and say, yeah, you'll it, it'll be okay. Like God God is with you. Go in peace. Um, just these last few weeks, I've been wrestling with uh, uh, good family friends and 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 college students and people making decisions and. And they're probably not even making fantastic decisions. They're probably not making the best decisions they've ever made in their life. <laughs> they're probably they're probably making some poor decisions. And uh and and there's a sense of panic, like if and my response has just been just it, it'll be all right. 
God's with you. You still are you still trying to figure it out? Then you'll figure this out. Go in peace. Um, how many of us don't have answers to the complicated, messy questions in our own lives? But th- but then how many of us have people around us that need help and we don't know how to help them? And I think we can take a page out of Elisha's book here and we can look at the Naamans in our own lives and say, it's it's okay. Go in peace. You got a long walk. You got a long life. You got a long season in front of you and you'll figure it out. How liberating uh, is that? For me, this I hold on to this story a lot. Now, sometimes there's answers. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's very straightforward. Sometimes there's a very concrete conversation to have. Like, I'm, I'm not denying the fact that those things exist. But, but in my experience, life is not full of those experiences. In, in my experience, life is full of very, very complicated messy conundrums that we experience on a daily basis. And, and the phrase, have you met God? Yeah, you've met God. Okay. Do you, do you love God? Do you want to? Okay. Then, then go in peace and go in peace. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories. It's good. A weighty story, if you will. Very kavod. It is a, it is a story Gadol. <laughs> there you go. But it's good. I hope it. I hope it's. Uh, I hope that's a gift to a, a lot of our listeners. There, there must be a place um, where we acknowledge the messiness of life and say, "Go in peace." Apparently, apparently, there's a there's a place for that in our life where we just say, "I, I don't know, but I've met God and I'm doing my best, and we're going to figure this out." Sounds great. Well, we'd love to hear your stories about um, how you've gone in peace or how you've sent others to go in peace. So get a hold of us. You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Salmon. You can find me at EIBCB. Uh, we'd encourage you to go to BaymontDiscipleship.com, go to the schedule page, and either join us for a discussion group on the Palouse or find another discussion group around the country. If there's not one available, uh, get in touch with us. We'll help you start one. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.